is the chief exercise of faith. It is a coming to an end of ourselves, declaring with our words, we need Christ, we need God. We will rely on him and call out to him. And that's what we will do together today in one body and in one spirit. How do we do that? We have the Holy Spirit that brings us, that unites us, and so we will pray in one Holy Spirit, but also let my words lead you in your prayer. And God even gave us a word to use to affirm that prayer, and that word is amen. So I invite you to use that word from time to time as we pray together. O oh Lord, our God, most merciful, most secret, yet most present, most constant, yet changing all things. You are never new and you are never old, always in action, creating, upholding, and perfecting all. Who has anything except what you have given? Or what can anyone say when we speak about you? Yet have mercy on us, O Lord, that we may speak to you and praise your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, as we embark on another year, help us consecrate our time here on this earth for your purposes. Do what you will with us. We are your servants. Lift up our affections away from the things that our lowest human nature pursues. Lift our gaze up to the higher and nobler things. Send your spirit fully into our hearts, Lord, and teach us to cry out, Abba, Father. As children, draw us to yourself with reverence and confidence. Show us how to love each other, even the family of God whom you graciously shepherd. Father, through Christ, we have been made members of your household, members of one another. And for all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, help us to see the beauty of your church, your people. As we embark on our Sunday school study of the one another's of the Bible, we pray that this will be a fruitful time, a time of growth in our knowledge of you and our love toward each other. Lord, cause us to see and feel that you, God, are our greatest good, even if knowing you means the loss of all earthly possessions. Cause the knowledge of you, our intimacy with you, to grip us, to overwhelm us so greatly that the loss of all things seems as no loss at all, that the things of this world appear as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you. Inspire us with that holy zeal for your glory, which will make the honor of your name, the good of your kingdom, and the accomplishment of your will far dearer to us than any interest of our own. Lord, I pray at this time, especially for the fathers and young men in our congregation, with the turning of the year, help each of us to take an account of our lives, considering the ways that we are serving you, leading our families, or hoping to one day begin a family. Lord, strengthen us with resolve to not be complacent with merely getting by, but to be bold for you, to show your love to our families, to lead in righteousness, to commit to private and family devotions. 
Help us to link arms with our brothers in Christ for the cause of Christ. And Lord, in our family, we have hurts and struggles. Many have been facing ongoing illnesses, ailments. We thank you for the news that Leah, Leah Pafner continues to improve from her stroke and that now she may continue her healing and rehab from the comforts of her home. May we, as a family, show her and the Pafners love and care during this time. We thank you for all those in the church who have already committed to bringing meals over to her. We also pray for Donna Zeke's daughter, Danielle. While she's recovering from the worst of the symptoms, she's now back in the hospital with pneumonia. So be with Donna as she cares for Danielle. Lord, as we consider the ways in which we may serve you this year in our church, in our homes, in our jobs, in our community, we thank you for the laborers you have sent out into the world who strive to make your name known to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the wonderful news that we've received from David and Alyssa Whistle in Japan. We thank you that their church has been able to secure a larger gathering location and that the good news that their first Sunday there, they saw their highest attendance. We pray that you will continue to help David in mastering the Japanese language as he labors to communicate your truth to lost souls. These can be difficult conversations to navigate as they wrestle with complex topics in a changing world. May their harvest be bountiful in pointing people to you, the unchanging yet merciful and gracious God. We thank you for the Hones in Leipzig, Germany, who have reported a packed Christmas Eve service, a time when even agnostic Germans will attend a service. We thank you that they chose to attend there where we know they heard the gospel clearly presented. May your Holy Spirit use the seed of that gospel and grow it in their hearts. Bring them to you to know you and your love for them. And now, Lord, as we have gathered in, the pre in your presence in the name of Christ, we ask that you work through your servant, Greg, that he may be able to preach your word with clarity and power. Lord, help us to set aside the distractions of this world, the burdens that we're carrying, and help us to, in this moment, to lay them down at the feet of Christ so that we may listen to your word this morning. And as we listen with our ears, may our souls be fed by your word. May we be satisfied in you alone. May we find great joy in your salvation, one which we did not know until you made it known to us. May our souls be lifted up in the light of your glory. In the name above all names, in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. <clears throat> so this morning our passage, as I said before, is in Romans chapter 11, and this will be, uh, where are we starting? Verse 11 to verse 24. So I ask, um, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is, na uh, what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Amen. Wow. Um, it's a lengthy passage, but fear not. Um, well, I've been doing this for about 31 years when I think about it, preaching. And honestly, there's not a time that I get up and stand in this place behind a pulpit that's the Word of God that there's not this overwhelming feeling of, of uh, responsibility and inadequacy that can only be met by the truth that God promises that his spirit and his word will do the work. There is nothing in us to proclaim or, or somehow entertain enough or to philosophize, besides even a word enough, <laughs> to try to convince people to, to believe this message. We must rely on God, and he, that is why prayer is the first and foremost preparation tool for the preacher, for the Christian, for the believer, for the listener, for the preacher himself. That's why we pray so much here, and that's why I ask you to continue to pray. It is by God's power and his spirit that any of us are here and can understand his word today. And, and again, this, this idea that he is to be worshipped, but, but how? Well, again, we must have his grace in our lives. We must beg him, and he's faithful. He's promised. Here's the thing about this. When the, the thing that encourages me most when I stand up to preach is not that I have so prepared and have so many great jokes. Now, when I was younger, that was kind of what I did. But the truth is, the knowledge that God wants this sermon to succeed more than I do. It's his glory. It's his gospel. It's his truth. So I trust in his promises that he will deliver his message by his grace. So let's, as we look at his word, realize that today God, as, as Josh already said, we're here by divine appointment this morning. There's no accident. God is here. You are here. His word is here. His spirit is here. Let us hear. Let us hear God's word this morning. Now, I want to do a quick review. We've been in Romans for over a year, and uh, just want to, uh, matter of fact, it was June of 2022 that we preached the first <laughs> sermon. So I want to review a little bit before we jump in here. Um, chapters 1 through 3, verse 20, talk about 
universal condemnation. We saw that all men are guilty before God. All are sinners, all are running from God, all are condemned because of that. But then chapters 3, beginning at verse 21 through chapter 5, talk about justification comes by grace through faith alone in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And then chapters 6 through 8, we see that sanctification by grace through faith. That's that, that idea that our growth in Christ, not only are we saved by grace through faith, but our growth, our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ is by grace through his spirit. And then chapters 9 through 11, where we're at now, talks about the scope of this salvation, the, the broad scope of God's grace toward those who trust him. And then we're going to see in chapters 12 through 16, the practical daily walk of the Christian. So back in chapter 9, if you remember, Paul began by just showing his broken heart for the fact that his people, his Jewish people, have rejected the Messiah. His heart was broken. He, matter of fact, he said, I wish I could give up my own salvation so that they could know Jesus. If I could, I would. That's how much I loved him. And then in chapter 10, we see that Paul desires that the nation of Israel would be saved. He says that again in chapter 10. That's the theme. I would that they would all come to know Christ. And now in chapter 11, we saw back in verse 1, Paul asked a question. He says, has God rejected his people? Because that's, the, that's the, the understandable question, right? If all the Jews who were his chosen people in the Old Testament, he chose the Israel nation, but now they've rejected him and he seems to have abandoned him. So the question is, has God rejected his people? To which Paul answered, by no means. He has not. And now today he asks a similar question in verse 11. So that's where we pick it up. Verse 11, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? They have stumbled. This is what the Bible talks about, that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's, he's this rock laid down. He's the foundation. And yet the Jewish people have stumbled over him. They've stumbled over him. He's become a, a stone of stumbling, not a stone of faith for them. But do they stumble that they may completely fall? So this is the qu question, right? Have you ever stumbled? I mean, you're walking down the street, you go, whoop, you trip, whatever, right? A stumble is not a fall in itself. A stumble you can recover from, right? Did they stumble, though, that they may fall completely? That's Paul's question. They've stumbled, but is it so they've completely fallen? God completely abandons them. Let's notice what he says. By no means. Again, he answers that question. By no means. God has not rejected his people, and he's not allowed them to stumble that they may completely fall. And this rest of this chapter, he's going to be showing how that God in his grace will save multitudes of Jewish people who approach him by faith. He goes on, though, he says, rather through their trespass. Here's an interesting fact, he says. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, one of the main things we grasp here is that the Jewish people, from a human standpoint, they rejected Christ in order for the, the Gentiles to receive him. And that's what had happened. The Jews rejected him, but then when the Gentiles, the pagans, those who could care less about Jehovah God, when they heard this glorious gospel, they grabbed it. They had nothing but 
but faith. I mean, they had no good works. They were not good people. They were not seeking God. They had nothing to offer. They knew they were scum. They knew they were sinners. And when they heard this glorious news that all those who are sinful could come to Christ believing that he lived this life for them that was perfect and died a death to pay for their rotten sin, they rested in him. They trusted him. And Paul says that was to make Israel jealous. And that that is his, his, his hope, to see them jealous and to come and say, wait a minute, we see what, what, what those believers have. We want that. So he goes on and says in, in verses 13 and 15, he builds up this idea, again, that through the rejection that Israel rejected Christ, the world's been blessed. <laughs> that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles and multitudes are believing. Romans 13, or Romans 11, verse 13. He says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So again, he's just reiterating what I said. This is Paul's hope that when, he, when, when the Jewish people see all of these Gentiles believing on Christ and they see the change in their life and they see the love of Christ demonstrated, that it will make them jealous and they will desire what they have in Christ. He says, for if their rejection, and he says this phrase again, and this is a puzzling phrase, but let's look at it. He says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, again, the Jewish population is minimal compared to the population of the world. So what Paul is saying, if the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews meant this great reconciliation of the multitude of the world, the Gentile population, how much, or he, 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 he goes on to say, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So twice he's, he's kind of alluded to the fact, wow, if their rejection of Christ has brought this great revival among the Gentiles and many are being saved, what will their acceptance of Christ mean to the world? Now again, we don't really know exactly what Paul means there. But especially this second time he says it, he gives us a hint. He says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And that is a general truth that we can all grab onto. Whatever it means in the future for Israel and how many will be saved and what the world, how they will be blessed, we know Paul is saying the world has already been blessed immensely by the Jewish people because it was to them that were given the oracles of God, to them were given the promises of God, to them were given the prophets, to them and through them came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So a lot of this text we're going to see today, Paul is saying, hey, Gentiles, there can be no anti-Semitism in your heart because the Jewish people are the root of Christianity today. You can't get away from that. But here he says this general phrase, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. And this is true not just for Jewish people, but for anyone who trusts Christ. It means life from death. Trusting Jesus means life from death. In this phrase, Paul, we understand the Bible they had, the Bible that the apostles used, was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They were writing the New Testament. But they preached from the Old Testament. And these words ring in our ears and they remind us of Ezekiel. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here. That's what Paul is talking to. That's what Paul is alluding to especially as he looks to his brothers and sisters in the, in the nation of Israel. And let's look back at this and see the promises God made 
to them and to all of us that will be made true through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But back here, it was a prophet. It was a prophecy. Hundreds of years before Christ, and yet alluding towards the gospel and God's plan through Christ and his cross to bring life. Verse 37, or sorry, chapter 37, verse 1, the prophet says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh Lord, God, you know. Only you know. But they look pretty dead to me. I mean, they are dry bones. And then God tells Ezekiel, verse 4, Then he said to me, Prophesy, preach over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Wow. I love this verse. Obviously because I'm a preacher. But all of us as Christians should love these words because that proclaim, that prophecy, that means speak forth the word of God. That's, we all do this. We all have dead people in our lives. Our family who don't know Jesus, they're walking dead. All of us, the Bible says, are dead in our trespasses and sins, and spiritually we're dead. We don't even know it. We're just walking dead people. This whole world is basically a valley of dry bones, and yet God in his grace has a message that needs to be proclaimed, and he tells all of us, preach my word. Tell them the good news of the gospel. That's what he's saying, and, and this is what Ezekiel does. In verses 7, 8, and 10, notice this. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. And the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Wow, what an amazing vision. What an amazing truth. This, 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 this resurrection, right, of these dry, dead bones that people say, good night, they would never live. Now, let's just take a moment and apply this, because many of you may have that uncle or that cousin or that sister who you say, man, alive, the day they walk in church, it'll collapse. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Like, those, that guy, that gal, they're just gone, right? We don't see any spiritual hope for them. They, they are so angry and bitter and resentful toward God or just happy in their ignorance of their need for, for, for God. There, there's just nothing there. There's no spiritual life, so to speak, no interest. Will they ever live is our question. And what this verse does is it gives us the hope and shows us that in the sovereign plan of God, no one is outside of the possibility of resurrection. You see that, folks. This is why we continue to preach the word to our, our loved ones, our friends, our family, our, our enemies, <laughs> to everyone. Why? Because we see this truth that God is able to bring life where there is death. And now look at this. As, as, this, as crazy as this vision seen to Ezekiel, God explains it. And it has a lot to do with our chapter today. 
Look what he says in verse 11. Then he said to me, says Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. And that's what everybody's telling Paul, right? Hey, God's given up on those Israelites. They've rejected Christ as their Messiah, and now they've stumbled, and they're about to fall and be completely lost. And that's exactly what Ezekiel was told would be said of Israel. They would be dry, dead bones. And, and they, they were, and they were living like this during Paul's day. And many today still blind to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Dead, dry bones. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So that language, Paul's going to use that same language again in Romans. We are indeed cut off off it seems therefore prophesy and say to them thus says the lord god behold i will open your graves and raise you from your graves O my people Whew. this is the promise of god this is why we can trust god he's faithful and so, so paul is saying no he has not rejected his people no he has not broken his promise he will keep his promise. He who promises is faithful and true. We can trust that. And even today, 2,000 years later, after Paul wrote this, we know that there are millions of Jewish people who have come to know Christ through evangelism and missions. Again, overall as a country, they still are very blinded toward who Christ is, but God's faithfulness is true. They are not totally cut off, and those who come to Christ by faith are resurrected as anyone who comes to Christ by faith can be glorious so, so so after paul sets this up and he reminds people that god keeps his promises and that israel is still um going to be and i and again i'm going to be honest ecclesia uh, as far as ecclesia uh, um, eschatology goes i'm not sure the future of israel i'm not going to get into all of that today i don't know how that how many i don't know if the whole of israel will come to know christ but we know that a multitude of people will that's what the bible's saying here and the thing that we've got to key in on is that the gospel makes possible for all of us dead, dry bones to be resurrected and have life flowing through our veins again. Because of what? Because of Christ. But now he moves in that direction, Paul does. He moves us back to that direction of looking, where is the source of our life, Jew or Gentile? What's the source? He alludes to the fact that for the Gentiles, they better not be proud, and they better remember that it's through the Jewish nation that Christ came into the world in the first place. Look at verse 16. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he uses this analogy of leaven and roots. The idea of um, a little leaven in the yeast, of, of, of or yeast rather, in, in the dough, and all of that, that, that whole loaf, therefore, rises. The Bible in the New Testament uses the idea of leaven as sin. A little sin leavens the whole lump, messes up the whole lump. If there's a, a, a little bit of poison mixed into your dough as you're meeting it out, and then you bake that bread, I don't want it. You don't want it. Why? Because now the whole loaf is unholy. But what this analogy is telling us is that if that yeast is holy, then it's mixed into the bread. The whole lump, the whole, the whole loaf is holy. Right? And then he uses the root analogy, the same idea. If the root of a tree is holy, then its branches are holy. You see that? 
So look what he says in verse 17 and 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward those branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It's a very humbling statement. For one thing, all of us, by the way, in this room, I would say, dare say, the majority of us are wild olive shoots. We are. We're just a bunch of wild shoots. We're not sophisticated like the we're not sophisticated like these olive trees that were pruned by the gardener and and they 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 had this this stock right this this wonderful uh, care given to them. No, we're the wild olive trees kind of springing up here and there. We're we're just wild branches. But this is grace. You wild shoots. <laughs> We're grafted in among the very chosen of God. What? We don't deserve that. That's the glory of grace and the gospel. That's what Romans is all about, the whole book of Romans. You wild shoots. You were grafted in among the others. So don't be arrogant. You didn't do anything to earn this or deserve this. Even... even the, the Jewish people, uh, Paul has hit it so many times, your good works and your lineage doesn't earn you a place with God. We're all basically wild shoots in that sense. And we must be grafted into the root who is Christ. So in one sense, Paul is saying here, okay, Gentiles, you've been grafted in, and historically, it's the Jewish people, their religion, if you will, that brought to us the knowledge of a Messiah, a promised Messiah, and that Messiah came through their ranks. He is a Jew. So don't be so arrogant. But it goes deeper than that. When he says the root supports you, you not the root. Yes, okay, Gentiles. It's those, that Jewish history that supports what you believe today, not vice versa. But it goes deeper because the root is not just the Jewish people. The root is Christ. The root is Christ. Period. And it's he who supports us, not we who support him. We need him. He really doesn't need us. Do, do you hear that? I know that's, that, that, that's a little harsh maybe, but again, there's so many approaches today to Christianity where it's like God, is, he needs you so badly. He really needs somebody like you. Wow, if you get saved, you're going to really help out the kingdom because you're so special. God is really hoping to get you, Gary Wirtz. Well, he's got you, but he's glad because, man, you're something else. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's sometimes what we think about ourselves. But it's not true. God does not need us. God in his grace shows mercy towards us for his good pleasure. So our salvation, at the bottom of the, here it is, the bottom line, your salvation is more about God getting glory than it is about you receiving good. Now, do you receive good? You better believe it. <laughs> like Brian uh, often says, Brian Eibel often says, it's like we won the mega millions, right? We won the lottery and more, right? With the salvation, the gift of God is priceless. It's amazing. But it's not about us. It's about God receiving glory. We need him. We have everything that we have from him. And so, look, 
he goes on now, and we're going we're gonna to end with, with, with this last bit of the passage. I want to apply it to you. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, to, just listen. <laughs> Verses 19 through 22, look how he begins to close out here. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And it says here, when I take this, the way that Paul's writing this is, it's, it's not really a humble statement like, oh my goodness, branches were broken off so that I could come in? I, I don't deserve it. No, no, no. Branches were broken off because I was so important, God broke them off to put me in. Us Gentiles, we, we usurped those Jews who rejected Christ, so look at that. Branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. Yeah, that's true, Paul says. That's true. But they were broken off not because God wanted specifically to replace them with you because you were so awesome. No, they were broken off because of their unbelief. And the only reason you're in is because of faith. Nothing you are, nothing you do. So do not become proud, but fear. Wow. So again, this, this reiterates the truth about Christianity. No genuine believer in Christ who has truly been forgiven of their sins and tasted of the forgiveness of God's grace can be arrogant and proud. You can't be. You're broken. And you actually have this fear, this awe of the mighty God who saved you. There's a reverence. There's a joy, yes, but there's that reverence, that balance we talked about. But there is not pride and there is not arrogance because we know we had nothing to offer. We were the wild shoots picked up randomly in our estimation by the grace of God. We are all here today because God picked us up, not because we picked ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's what he's saying here. If you are in Christ, do not have pride. Instead, fear. Why? Now, this is, now listen, this is God's word for us. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of the Lord and of God. That's, that's a powerful verse. There is a kindness that we see. We, are to, we, are, we, we literally worship God for his kindness. We worship God for his grace, his mercy. There is that. That is God. But we must also worship the whole God and not just the God we like, the parts of God, the attributes of God we like. Because Paul says you cannot just remember the kindness of God, but you must also remember the severity of God. Our God is a consuming fire, the Bible says. So what does Paul say about this kindness of God and severity of God? He says, God is severe toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you toward, uh, provided you continue in his kindness. Now, this is a huge verse. What does that mean? Because he goes on to say, okay, consider both the severity and kindness of God, his severity toward those who have fallen, and his kindness to you, who he has shown kindness, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. 
Whoa. Now that'll get the attention of a Monday morning Bible study. When you're reading through your Bible and say, wait a minute. Did this just say that I'm in danger of being cut off? This is the old question, folks. Is, is, is the Bible teaching that we can lose salvation? Is it possible to lose salvation? That's the question. Is it possible? Here's the way that Paul asked that question back in Romans 8, 9, and 10. Is it possible that God could bestow his eternal love on you and then stop loving you, change his mind? That's really the question. So again, remember, the question is never, can I lose my salvation? The real question a Christian asks is, can God ever stop loving me once he's placed his love and affection upon me? And the answer to that is no. That's the quick answer, folks. Maybe some are breathing, but don't breathe too easy. Because these verses are given, I believe, Spurgeon, when he commented on Hebrews chapter 6, there's verses there that talk about those who have tasted but then fallen away, and this verse seems to be talking about those who were grafted in but then maybe cut off and, and uh, grafted out, so to speak, lose it. What are these verses? Are they just hypothetical? I don't think so. I think they are genuine warnings, as Spurgeon said. Why? God in his sovereignty, when he saves somebody by his grace, he preserves them by his grace. Remember, we, we didn't do anything to earn our salvation. That's the whole purpose of the book of Romans. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from works. So we didn't do anything to earn our righteous standing before God. The logical question, therefore, is what, therefore, can we ever do to lose it? Nothing. I didn't do anything to gain it, and I can't do anything to lose it. So again, my salvation, is it rests solely upon God's love for me and his drawing of me to himself and his imparting his Holy Spirit in me and his regenerating me and making me his child. All of that. And he preserves me. Now here's the question. That means that if you profess to know Jesus Christ when you were 12 years old, then when you are 87 years old, the track record of your life will be a faithful life lived for God. Not a perfect life. There may be some years in there that you would love to scratch out. But the ultimate trajectory of your life for all those years is one that is facing toward Christ, not away. Do you see? And why is that? Why is the, the majority of your life, since the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior and made that profession and, and began to live for it, and you're still doing it when you're 82. Why are you still living at 82 for Christ? Because God's preserving you by his grace. That's, that's it. But you're also persevering. So these are the twin doctrines. Ah, I know, I know, we don't have time. We've got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. Whoa, this is the, the antinomies of the Bible, right? God's sovereignty and our salvation, and then our responsibility as human beings, right? They're both true. So I, as a as a believer on Christ in this world, I'm giving I'm given these instructions from the Bible that tells me you better persevere, continue in my commands. Those who say they believe on me, Jesus said, if you say you love me, keep my commandments. And those who do keep my commandments, those are my true disciples. How do we keep his commandments, though? Oh, 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 you're going to keep those commandments 
because my spirit is in you and my grace is working through you. They're both true. And so God uses, here's, here's why I went to that whole link there. God uses verses like this to preserve us. That fear that we should feel, it's healthy. God says, hey, hey, humanly speaking, in this life, examine yourself. Are you, are you living for me? Do you see evidence of change? Are you following me? Are you trusting me? We need to be, we need to be disciplined on that every day. We need to be challenged on that from the human side because God uses those warnings to preserve us. I hope you understand this. Let me just give it like this. Here, here it is. Again, what does Paul say? He's not talking about losing our salvation here. here. Here's why. He's not talking about losing salvation. No, he's talking about belief and unbelief. That's what he's talking about in this context. What did he say? He said, they, Israel, were broken off because of their unbelief. They were broken off because they did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They were not trusting in Christ, period. And here it is, folks. Anybody, I don't care how long you've been in church, how many times you read the Bible, how many times you've, you've prayed for someone, uh, I don't care how many years you've been in Sunday school, anybody who is not at this moment believing on Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, you are lost. That's what he's saying here. Anyone who is not believing on Christ is not grafted in. Period. He went on to say that. He said, they were broken off because they have no belief, but you stand fast because of faith. You believe. Boy, that, I know that sounds very simplistic, but it's, that, that's where we've got to go here with this context. If you are believing by faith that you have nothing to offer God, that you have nothing to save yourself with, that you are totally lost, but you are believing with all of your heart that everything needed for righteousness is in Christ, and you are resting in Him and Him alone, and you are saved. That's what the Bible says. The application of this, very quickly, is, is simply something like this. It's the, the evidence, I, I kind of hit on it. The evidence that a person, here it is, the evidence, that a person is saved is not, capital N-O-T, is not that they believed on Jesus' past tense. That is not the evidence. The evidence that somebody is saved is not that they can say, oh yeah, when I was 14 at church camp, I uh, said a prayer and had Jesus in my heart and I believed. And they've lived like the devil for the last 25 years. But their assurance is in this thing of, oh, I made a profession of faith. I asked Jesus into my heart 28 years ago. I believed past tense. No, folks, the, the evidence of salvation is that they believe present tense. I believe this moment I am resting in nothing but Christ and Christ alone. Every morning I wake up, I say, Lord, it's only by your grace. Every lunch prayer, same prayer. Every dinner prayer, same prayer. I mean, day in, day out, all of our lives, folks, for the Christian, it is nothing but a continual belief on Christ. And that belief daily, resting in his grace, works out in my life. And I live for him. My life is different. 
It's way different than the person that says, I believed and I went forward in a church years ago, and yeah, I've been a guy with a Christian, and everybody in their family tells her, oh yeah, Johnny's a Christian, Johnny's a Christian. And Johnny don't know squat about Jesus. He has no relationship, no love, no faith in Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying here, folks? That's what Paul's talking about here. Those who are not believing on Christ are not grafted in. Those who are believing, by faith, you believe. That's synonymous. Faith, belief. You are. That's it. That's as simple as that. What is this all saying? It's saying that saving faith, genuine saving faith, is an abiding faith. The faith that saves is an abiding faith, and that, that abiding faith is a gift from God. Do we see that connection? That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, which is what Paul's talking about in this context. You cannot boast if you're in Christ. You cannot boast if you have faith in Christ. Because even that, especially that faith, is the gift of God toward you. That abiding faith you have in Christ, that's a gift. That's all by God's grace. It's amazing grace. And so this is what Jesus meant. I'm just going to connect this, and we're done. John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Jesus said the same thing when he said, I am the vine, I am the root, is what he's saying. It's me. You must be abiding in me to have righteousness. And so what he says, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There it is. If you are abiding in Christ, he is abiding in you, and you will have fullness. You will have richness. You will have the very life-giving sustenance that comes from the root, Christ, coming into you, and you will bear fruit for him. You, are, you will do good works, basically, is what that means. You will have a change in your life, not brought on by you or a New Year's resolution, which many of us have made. I've already been to the gym twice. And we can make those resolutions all day long. Big deal. That's, that, that's, that, but it's not, that's not what uh, will cause us to abide in Christ. It's because he's abiding in us as well. And then we begin to bear fruit and do good works because of him in us. Again, remember, we're not supporting him. He's supporting us. He's nourishing us. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So again, we see the same sentimentality that's going on in Romans. But again, we, we can fear, oh no, well, what does this mean? I'm going to lose. Folks, all Christ is saying is this for the Christian. Here it is. Here it is. Here's what the Bible is saying when it comes to faith in Christ. Never Stop trusting in Jesus alone as your righteousness. Every day, every minute of every day, we never stop trusting and believing on Christ as our Savior. That's why when I witness to people, I never say, have you ever been saved or, or you know, uh, 
why are you going to heaven because back to here I joined church? No, no. I always just simply say, what are you trusting in this moment to make you right with God? And there's only two answers. Well, I'm a pretty good fellow, and I go to the church over there. I don't yell at my wife but three times a week, and I don't do, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, you throw out all kinds of stuff. Or the only other answer is this. Christ. <laughs> That's the only other answer. What are you trusting in right now to make you righteous? Jesus. That's it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. That's all that Paul is asking us to do is just continue daily putting no confidence in the flesh but putting all of our faith in the perfection of Jesus Christ who lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, and now lives forever to pray for us. There's where my confidence is. There's where my hope is. And he showed us this. He gave us a meal. He said...